official podcast of the Irish Association of Speech and Language Therapists, the IASLT in conversation. Today we're discussing the Assisted Decision-Making Capacity Act 2015, which is due to commence this year. The Assisted Decision-Making Act is about maximizing a person's capacity to make decisions. It recognizes that as far as possible, all adults have the right to play an active role in decisions that affect them. These decisions can be about anything from personal welfare to health and social care decisions to their finances. While the Act was signed into law in 2015, it hasn't commenced yet. It is due to go live before the end of the year, um, and when this does happen, it will come fully into effect. Once it comes into effect, the Act will have implications for everyone who works in health and social care services. So we're delighted to be having this conversation today. I'm Breed Spillan. I work with adults with intellectual disability, and I'm joined here today by Dr. Sinead Kelligan, Acting SLT Manager from HSE Southeast Community Healthcare in Carlow and Kilkenny, and Caroline Howarth, who is the Director of Adult Clinical Services at St. Michael's House in Dublin, as well as SLT Manager. You're both very welcome. Hi, good evening. It's great to have you both. Um, so I suppose, Sinead, I'll, I'll start with you. Maybe can you just tell us where exactly are we at the moment with the Act? Well, as you mentioned, Breed, um, the Act was actually signed into law a good while ago in 2015, and we are knee deep in preparation for it to be commenced. And we're all hopeful that that will happen this year. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess we're we're looking forward to it and we're very much welcoming this big change in legislation. It's a long overdue um, change because it's replacing legislation that's actually Victorian. So it's a big change um, and it'll provide that, as I say, long overdue human rights compliant legal framework for us to start thinking about decision making uh, a bit in our day to day work. Um, As you're saying, it's kind of relevant to all health and social care professionals, not just speech and language therapists. Um, And it'll help move us along from what used to be a status based all or nothing approach to capacity where you either had it or didn't Mm -hmm. um, to a much more flexible and functional approach. Thinking about capacity is um, context issue and time specific. And Caroline, what are the implications of the Act for us SLTs? Well, Breed, I think, you know, really the most important message for today is that this is a hugely positive development and that this act really is an act for everybody, for me, for you, for our parents, for our friends, for our colleagues. And from a professional perspective, um, the ADM Act can have impact for speech and language therapists as individual SLTs and for the SLT profession as a whole. So I was going to speak briefly about each of those today. Great. So individual SLTs as the professionals uniquely skilled in assessing, diagnosing and supporting an individual's communication skills will be uniquely placed to perform those functions under the Act. But I suppose people might be thinking, what does that actually mean for me? And yes, it is about helping others to understand a person's strengths and needs in communication and about putting the appropriate supports in place. But in reality, we do that kind of work every day. So what is significant about SLTs doing this kind of work under the provisions of the Act? Um, So under the ADM Act, appropriate communication supports are an essential step in promoting the person's independence in decision-making, their human right to make their own decision. 
Appropriate communication supports enable the person to build their decision-making capacity, to maximise their autonomy and to centralise their will and preference and their choice-making ability. So it's really not just an SLT assessment. Mm -hmm. It's a way to unlock a person's decision-making potential and their right to have control over their lives. Um, Certainly my experience is that many SLTs are familiar or comfortable in conducting their clinical assessments and providing recommendations. So really the piece for individual SLTs now is to reflect on, on how and where that responsibility sits in supporting the person and those around them to recognise their will, preference and decision-making capacity. So with that in mind, there may be additional questions for the SLT to ask themselves. Um, to augment, I suppose, their typical approach to providing communication supports. So, for example, um, do I, as an SLT, have the belief that all people have capacity to make their own decisions until the contrary is shown? Do I, as an SLT, have an ability to observe the person's will and preference? And is the time available to me to explore this? Do I understand the skill required in exploring the will and preference of people with more complex communication needs or significant disabilities and the benefit of doing this well and documenting it very clearly? Do I understand the decision that is to be made? And if this is a decision that's important to the person or maybe it's important for them? And why is that differentiation important? Can I be assertive or support the person to be assertive in relation to their circle of support? and who should be involved in this process? And can I enact my knowledge of the person's right to receive information in a way they understand? And am I committed to upholding that right? Essentially, I suppose it's about whether I understand my role in the decision-making process. I don't have to be an expert in the decision that is to be made, unless it's related to my profession. The SLT is the expert in facilitating the communication and that's an important distinction to be made. So in addition to those responsibilities, SLTs are also identified as one of the prescribed professionals under the Act. Um, and these professionals may be tasked with completion of formal assessments of capacity in relation to assigning co-decision makers or enduring powers of attorney. Other prescribed professionals are nurses, social workers, OTs and psychologists. Formal statements from a healthcare professional are required to register these arrangements with the DSS. So SLTs engaging in such assessments for these purposes should have a very solid understanding of what co-decision making arrangements and DPAs entail. Finally, I'll return to the potential impact of ADM for the speech and language therapy profession as a whole. It certainly is a significant opportunity for us as a profession to demonstrate our skills in empowering people with communication needs to advocate for themselves and for us to advocate on their behalf too. ISLT and SLTs in various roles have already been approached by the HSE, the DSS and other agencies to contribute to modules, webinars, training and events, highlighting the role of our profession and the importance of communication as a core principle underpinning the Act. It's hard to say at this stage what resource implications there may be for speech and language therapy post-implementation. Clearly, a variety of stakeholders may be involved in assessing or building a person's decision-making capacity. But given the likely co-occurrence of communication needs in people potentially seeking supports under the Act, it's something we will need to closely monitor and possibly respond to. And at present, the HSE are completing ADM impact assessments throughout the CHOs and funded agencies, 
and it would be worthwhile for SLTs to seek opportunity to input to these. Okay, well, that's really great. Thank you, Caroline, and some some great questions just to think about um, for for each of us. Um, so you mentioned functional assessment there as well. Can we can you talk us through that a little bit more in relation to ADM and maybe specifically how this can be managed for people with more severe or profound intellectual disability? Yeah, it, it's certainly a, a huge topic. It's hard to cover all the bases on it this evening um, in one podcast. But look, essentially, a functional assessment of capacity should follow the same human rights ethos as, as the act itself. Um, it's about avoiding unnecessary assessments of capacity. When assessments do occur, the focus is on how the assessment can uncover what supports are required to enable the person reach their decision-making potential. The Act clearly states that a person's capacity shall be assessed on the basis of his or her ability to understand, at the time that a decision is to be made, the nature and consequences of the decision. The assessment is to be issue specific and time specific and the process is the focus, not the outcome. So in considering whether a functional assessment of capacity is required, it might be useful to refer back to the guiding principles of the Act. So, for example, some of the things we could ask ourselves were in relation to presuming capacity. Was there a valid trigger for conducting the assessment in the first instance? Did the process start from the position of presuming capacity? In relation to supportive decision-making, we should be checking where all the appropriate supports put in place to promote the person's decision-making ability before an assessment of capacity commenced. We can think through the third principle, so the right to make an unwise decision. Has the person's right to make an unwise decision been respected or has the perceived validity of the person's decision triggered the assessment in the first case? The fourth principle of the Act is intervening only when necessary. So we need to think about what other options or supports have been explored before triggering the assessment. The fifth principle of the Act is respecting the person's rights and will and preference. So have the person's rights, will and preference been respected and documented at every stage in the process? For example, do they know in the first instance that a functional assessment is about to be completed and have they consented for that? We need to consider the views of others. Who else is part of this process? Has the person consented to their involvement? Um, and finally, of course, we need to always consider how any information is being obtained, used or stored throughout the process. So once a decision to complete a functional assessment has been made, the assessment itself should address four key areas. There won't be a standard assessment, and in reality, that would be against the spirit of the Act, but there are common areas to be considered and principles to be applied. So if you are conducting a functional assessment of capacity, the four questions that must be asked are, can the person understand the information relevant to the decision? Can they retain the information long enough to make a choice? Can they use or weigh up that information as part of the process of making the decision? And can he or she communicate the decision by any means? So we can look at each of these in a little bit more detail. So number one, what is the information relevant to the decision that needs to be understood? The level of understanding should not be set too high, just sufficient enough to understand the information related to the decision being made. In presenting the information, we can consider the language concepts involved, the grammar structures involved, the length of the utterances being used, the person's symbolic understanding. Question words, can people process their who, where, when, what, and why? 
Reflecting on how does the person typically make choices? Are their choice-making skills reliable? What comprehension supports does the person typically enjoy? Do they need extra time for processing? Are there factors within the environment that need to be considered? Are there additional tools that we could offer? Written language, visual aids, sign language, law, objects, etc. The second question relates to retention. What is the evidence that the person can retain the information and how has this been obtained? The person conducting the functional assessment can explore questions like, when was the information provided to the individual? Do they have strengths or needs in auditory memory, visual memory, short-term, long-term memory, etc.? Were there the opportunity for multiple presentations if the person required this? How long were they able to retain the information for? They don't have to retain it forever, just long enough to make the decision. What was the evidence that the person could retain the information? Remembering just because someone can repeat the information, as we know, does not mean they understand it. The third area looks at the person's ability to use or weigh up information related to the decision. Can the person show internal representation or ability to solve basic problems by thinking about them? Does the person understand the implications of deciding one way or the other, that is, the risks and benefits of making that decision? Do they understand the consequences of not making a decision at all? And can the person use past experience to solve problems? The final area within the assessment should consider whether the person can communicate their decision through any means. Does the person have preferred means of communication? If this is an aided communication system, is it with them? Is it charged? Does the communication partner know how to facilitate the person's chosen communication mode or is a support person required to facilitate the exchange? How does the person usually communicate decisions, communicate their likes or dislikes? And finally, does the person have a consistent yes, no response? Can you check with those who know them well to understand what this response looks like? Ultimately, and unfortunately perhaps, it's not a, no, it's not a one size fit all approach. It's an individualized approach with common principles, a framework, but we should have expectations as to what that framework looks like. Finally, a specific question was raised before the podcast regarding how functional assessments would be conducted with people with severe or profound ID. The answer to that is in a lot of the areas we've discussed, we still start with the presumption of capacity and we spend time getting to know the person or speaking with people who know the person very well to understand their will and preference. People with severe and profound ID can and do make decisions about their lives every day when they are afforded the opportunity to do so and when their communication methods are heard and recognised. So if the person's will and preference are clear through the information gathering process, then there may be no need for a functional assessment in the first place. Remember, we're not trying to conduct hundreds of assessments of capacity. We're looking to put all the supports in place to enable people to make decisions for themselves Functional assessments are just one possible step in that process. Okay, great. Thank you, Caroline. And yeah, some really practical considerations there. And Sinead, if I can just ask you then, um, what training and supports are currently available uh, and maybe to SLT specifically as well? Hmm. I think there's lots of um, really useful information out there. Um, particularly at the moment um, as we prepare for the commencement of the Act. I think one really useful source of information and support is, is the Decision Support Service itself. Mm -hmm. So the Act established that service and that has very clearly defined functions in terms of holding a register of supporters, promoting public awareness, dealing with complaints, all of those 
issues. Um, and for people who wouldn't be familiar with the kind of tiered levels of supports that can be accessed, the Decision Support Service um, has established those. So there's three types of decision support for people who currently or shortly will face um, challenges when making decisions. Mm -hmm. So they are a decision-making assistant agreement, co-decision-making agreement, and a decision-making representation order. And then there's two other kind of types of support for people who are planning ahead for a time when they mightn't have capacity or won't have capacity in the future. And um, so that's an advanced healthcare directive and enduring power of attorney. And as Caroline mentioned already, speech and language therapists are one of the five prescribed class of professionals who alongside our colleagues in OT, nursing and midwifery, social work and psychology can carry out a capacity assessment in relation to registering either an enduring power of attorney or a co-decision-making agreement. So the Decision Support Service details this tiered approach to supporting decision-making really clearly, has lots of useful documents there. Um, I know they're planning to publish codes of practice later on in the year, which will be really, really useful for health and social care professionals. And they're also going to run a public health um, information campaign about assisted decision-making and the Act. So that's a really fabulous support um, for everyone to draw on. Um, other areas of support are um, the HSE in particular has um, an e-learning program specifically about support and decision making in health and social care. So that's a three modulled program which can be done on HSE land and it's readily accessible to lots of people. Um, and they have a module that would include working um, on supporting a person to make decisions, supporting a person to plan for their future, um, and then a module that kind of covers how you would carry out a functional assessment of capacity. So as Caroline was discussing, that module demonstrates how someone carries out that assessment of capacity. There's a speech and language therapy example, but there's an example of a nurse, there's an example of a social worker um, carrying out functional assessment of capacity. So that's really useful to see, oh, actually this is how this will look like in real yeah. life in our day-to-day -day work. Um, also, the HSC um, has a website, the assisteddecisionmaking.ie website, which gathers all the up-to-date current information on assisted decision-making um, for healthcare staff, which is really, really useful. So that has newsletters, frequently asked questions, has a great webinar series you can watch back, um, lots of explainer videos. Um, sometimes it's hard to just keep reading and reading and reading, and it's nice to watch videos yeah. and, and interact like that with the information. So that's really useful as well, and that's updated regularly by the um, HSE's National Office of Human Rights and Equality. The National Consent Policy, which is revised recently, but the HSE's National Consent Policy is also a really useful support. Um, and again, that establishes the foundation that we're all working from in terms of how we implement consent in our day-to-day -day practice. So that's a very inclusive document with lots of really good information there too. Um, and then finally, the IASLT are in the process of updating their position statement on the role of speech and language therapies in assessing capacity. So that's really timely in light of what's happening and all the changes that are afoot. So there is lots and lots of support out there. And I guess talking to your colleagues, not just mm -hmm. your SLT colleagues, but your MDT colleagues and helping create that awareness and culture um, around the changes um, that are happening is, is really, really important because supporting decision making, very like communication is everyone's responsibility. Um, speech and language therapists definitely have a unique skill set that's important in, in implementing that, but it's really useful to talk to all of your colleagues about what's going on and how they're responding to the changes too, I think. 
Thanks, Sinead. Some really useful resources there and all easily accessible online. Before we finish up, then, is there any advice that, that you would give to SLTs on what we can do to prepare for the incoming act? Just any any final thoughts, Sinead? Maybe we'll start with you. Yeah, I think, um, as I was saying, yeah, like keep calm and carry on as the expression <laughs> goes. Yeah. Um, I think I would like to think that speech and language therapists um, are practicing in a way that really echoes the spirit of the act mm -hmm. in terms of giving effect to the will and preference of the people we're supporting during our day-to-day -day work. Um, I would like to think that we do that by making lots of reasonable adjustments and implementing strategies to support people to participate in the decision-making around their clinical care. So I feel like we have a really solid skill set to, to build from. Mm -hmm. um, I think other principles of the act that Caroline touched on, like the presumption of capacity, the being proportionate and you know, offering minimal intervention. Um, I think there are things we are all we're kind of already doing in lots of our practice um, in terms of advocating for people who maybe have complex communication needs, um, advocating for, for, for the fact that everyone can communicate and does communicate mm -hmm. and helping unmask some of those skills that maybe don't get seen by, by other people. Um, so I think that helps to kind of bring that presumption of capacity alive that the act so strongly speaks to. Thanks, Sinead. And Caroline? I think it's exactly what Sinead has said, that speech and language therapists should feel confident that they have many skills to bring to support the decision-making processes um, going forward under the Act, and that many of that is reflected within the work practices of speech and language therapists around the country already. I think that was Sinead and I spoke uh, in preparation for this podcast, and one of the questions we had for each other was where to pitch it, because we're both aware of so many SLTs practicing so highly and so competently um, in areas that naturally relate to decision making already. Uh, so we were trying not to pitch it at, at the wrong level, you know, acknowledging the vast knowledge that's within our professional group already. So I think people should be confident. Possibly it is just that broadening of knowledge in relation to the act itself um, and the human rights elements of it and how we can be influential at a local and national level with that too. Great. Okay, well, thank you both very much for, for joining me this evening. There's a lot to think about and, and some really practical advice. So, and thank you for sharing all of your knowledge on the Assisted Decision-Making Act. You can listen to our other podcasts by following our social media channels on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, or by searching IASLT in conversation on Spotify.